The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline D.C. I'm a national democratic strategist, a columnist for The Messenger in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles. If you'd like to read my columns in The Messenger, the best way to get at them uh, is muckrack.com. That's muckrack, all one word, dot com, front slash Brad Bannon. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Uh, with us today, as always, is our intrepid executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. He's on the boards to make sure the show runs on time and stays online. Uh, we've got a couple of great gifts today. Uh, in the first half hour, Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, uh, joins us to discuss uh, politics, uh, the impact of the Gaza crisis and the speaker crisis on campaign 2024. In the second half hour, Bob Deans, uh, strategic, director of strategic engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council, joins us to discuss the upcoming UN-sponsored climate conference coming up next month in Dubai. Before we get to our first guest, though, we're going to play this, play this clip. And it's Rick Cheney. Uh, excuse me, it is uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, I about her father. Uh, Liz Cheney on threats to GOP lawmakers from Jim Jordan while he was running for speaker. What do you think is driving the domestic threats against lawmakers within the Republican Party and also uh, among some Democrats? The domestic threats are absolutely being driven by uh, Donald Trump and, and unfortunately some of his supporters who in fact have encouraged and taken steps that have resulted in, as we saw on January 6th, political violence. When you have a member of Congress reportedly uh, like uh, Warren Davidson from Ohio who in the meeting with Jim Jordan last week, when some of the holdouts raised with Jordan the fact that they were getting death threats, mm -hmm. one of them told me that in response, Congressman Davidson said, well, that's not Jim Jordan's fault. That's your fault for voting against him. That is the kind of encouragement and acceptance of violence that is absolutely uh, has no place in this party, should it's have no place in our country. Yep, that was Liz Cheney talking about the threats that were made on behalf of Jim Jordan's late and failed speaker candidacy. Our guest today in this half hour is Sarah Jones, uh, who is the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. Uh, you can, uh, Sarah's Twitter handle is 
Politicus, Sarah, that's P-O-L-I-T-I-C-U-S-S-A-R-A-H. And if you want to check out Politicus USA, you can do it at politicususa.com. Sarah, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We're always glad to have you on. Thank you, Brad. It's so good to be here. And I'm loving your new column home. Very nice. At the messenger. Yeah. Uh, uh, we'll get to that. I want you to talk about uh, something I wrote about in my latest messenger column. And again, if you'd like to read them, um, you can always uh, check them out at muckrack.com. That's muckrack, all one word, dot com slash Brad Bannon. Uh, let me ask you first, uh, what do you make of the uh, fight for speaker in the House? Uh, today, last late last week, uh, Jim Jordan uh, failed in his quest for the speakership. Thank God, uh, after three rounds of ballots, which uh, and it's interesting, he did progressively worse on each ballot. Yeah. Uh, was a trending popular. direction for old Jim, and even he saw the light of the day after a while. Uh, tonight, uh, I, apparently, the last time I checked, we had nine. Republican mm-hmm. House members who are running for speaker. I believe they're going to have some kind of deba- debate tonight. And who knows, maybe have a vote tomorrow. Uh, uh, Sarah, would you like to weigh in on the speaker's fight? Well, first of all, I think we should not um, breeze over, and it's good that you played that clip, the rising violence that is now turning in on itself. Uh, This violence is largely happening within the MAGA extremism part of the Republican Party. Um, It is turning in on itself. And this extremism is not only a danger to Republicans, and there were Republican lawmakers whose wives and children, uh, wives were getting threats and children had to have security at their at their school. Um, This is a threat to our republic. And, you know, this is a threat to democracy. You can't have people afraid to take a vote in the U.S. House of Representatives for a speaker uh, who are being ruled by fear and intimidation and threats. That's all how, you know, that Trump has basically taken hold of the Republican Party. And I also think that this is more Democratic backsliding and and, you know, is moving towards autocracy. What does it say politically about Republicans? I think you um, might agree with me that it seems like Republicans can pretty much do anything. If you look at their uh, slate of speaker candidates, for example, um, very few have supported democracy. Um, They don't have good grades. uh, You're right. Uh, Of the nine speaker candidates... Uh, seven of them uh, voted to just decertify the results of the 2020 election. Right. And and um, they we, we're not seeing leadership of the kind that would have courage to vote, you know, to uh, impeach Donald Trump, for example, after the insurrection. So these are not people who should be in any position in um, a democracy. They shouldn't be in a leadership position. But um this has been going on in the Republican Party for 30 years. I wrote about that for my Substack this morning, that this history of chaos and dysfunction and what we're seeing now is kind of, you know, this is the culmination of of 30 years of effort to uh, take power when it isn't given to them by the voters 
you know, and that's the gerrymandering of the districts, for example, is why we have this extremism. Because I think people look, I mean, I know when I do um, like a show on the BBC or something, and they, they're kind of, you know, how could they not side eye us? What is going on over there? And it's hard to explain that these loud voices of extremism that represent the people in the U.S. House of Representatives actually don't represent the people. Oftentimes, they're in these super gerrymandered districts. Jim Jordan himself is a prime example of that. So I don't see that this is going to hurt the Republicans the way that it would in a real democracy where there weren't all these this corruption of our political processes. But I also have been seeing the media a little bit shifting and starting to hold Republicans accountable and not letting them you know, blame Democrats for the violent threats that they're getting, because I've seen them try to conflate that and get called out. That isn't very much, but it, but I don't think that they are going to, it's that it's going to be great for them to go into an election where they're branded as this party of, you know, threats. Yeah, you wouldn't think so, Sarah. You know, no. I've watched the Republicans. Uh, you know, Donald Trump is facing trial, I don't know, on Dozens of indictments. I think I saw the number 91 somewhere. I don't know if that's accurate, but it's yep. a lot, whatever it is. Uh, you watch the Republicans in the House who have proved, you know, beyond doubt they're incapable, incapable of governing. I mean, essentially, you know, we talk about the government shutdown uh, that's coming on November 15th. But for all intents and purposes, the United States government has shut down. And it's shut down because the Republicans can't get their act together, even internally. Exactly. And day 20. Day 20 without a speaker. Day 20 without a speaker. Yeah. You know, I talked to a reporter who covers the House Republicans today. And, you know, I asked her, are we going to have a speaker this week? And I almost thought for sure she'd say yes. And she said, I don't know. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is crazy. And you would think that, you know, you would think they've proved totally incapable of governing. And do you think this is going to have a lasting effect? Uh, in, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask you this question because we have to take a short break for our radio listeners and I want to stop you in mid-answer. Uh, this is Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we are now going to take a short break to give our radio listeners a little vacation, but we're going to stick with folks who are watching us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, we'll be back right after this very short break. Welcome back to Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Politicus USA. Uh, we're here talking about domestic politics. Uh, in the second half hour, we're going to have Bob Deans from the Natural Resources Defense Council uh, talk about environmental policy. And uh, Sarah, I'm going to uh, ask you this question. Uh, the world is in chaos. Uh, we've got a proxy war going on with the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, we've got a proxy war uh, in the Middle East. 
Yeah, and between the two of those, if you watch the network news every night, which I do faithfully, despite the fact I can't stand watching it, uh, it's just uh, that occupies all the coverage. And in the second half hour, I'm going to ask Bob Deans uh, whether or not all this focus on world conflict is just dampening the voter attention towards the environmental crisis we face. And I'm going to ask a slightly different version of the question to you. And, you know, it seems to be Joe Biden's biggest challenge between now and Election Day 2024 is uh, to make the sale on the economy. Uh, he hasn't yet. Uh, CN, uh, CNBC released a poll last week that showed his job rating for handling the economy was only his approval for handling the economy is only 33 percent. And it seems to me if Democrats are going to do well, if Joe Biden's getting reelected, uh, he's going to have to make the sale on the economy, which he hasn't done yet. How can he do that? Well, you know, he's out there doing it all the time, and I, I don't understand why it hasn't resonated with people. I've never seen a president work harder to create jobs, and I've been covering a lot of the White House uh, briefings on those different uh, pushes that they're doing. I mean, they're constantly, every couple of days, there's a new announcement about here's these tech hubs and here's these, you know, other, whatever it is, it's always to create good paying jobs and they're working trying to get labor agreements for these uh workers they're working with private companies they can't always guarantee that but so i i see him out there making this case the economy's doing you know if you look at how the economy is covered and and how when their uh, unemployment is low um the media will say oh this is really bad you know because markets don't like this what if we shift that lens and we start talking about the economy from the point of view of most Americans, working Americans, and how um, they don't really care uh, how the market is doing. They care that they can um, pay their mortgage and pay their groceries. I, I think that so much of our perspective on the economy is so focused on how big corporations are doing and what the wealthy think about it instead of how the people at home are doing. And I don't know what else, you know, Joe Biden's out here constantly and and Kamala Harris is out um, and all of their other, you know, they've got um, all the other um, proxies sort of for them giving, making this case, visiting c cities around the country constantly. And why isn't it resonating with people? I really don't know. I think it's very strange. And it may be that people aren't focused on the economy right now because everything is, you know, better than it was. Um, interest rates are higher and that's making people maybe not happy. Uh, but I don't have this great answer for that. I think it's this huge hole. Well, you know, I hope the Biden administration figures it out because what they've done so far, they have not made the sale or even come close to making the sale. And I don't know the answer either. I wish I did. Uh, but, you know, uh, even in times of international crisis, Americans vote their pocketbooks. Uh, and at this point, if that happens, Democrats going to be in big trouble. And I agree with you, Paul. You know, we're a year or you know, more than uh, 12 months out, we're about 12 and a half miles, uh, months out from the presidential election. 
and I hope things change uh, because it's going to be big problems. You know, I, I can actually see a situation now, and I really hate to say this, uh, but Americans are just so fed up with life in general. Uh, I could see very much um, all three electoral branches of the federal government changing hands. Uh, the White House and the Senate going from Democrat to Republican uh, and the House going from uh, from uh, Republican to Democratic. Uh, if we had an election today, I think that's how things would go. But you're right. Uh, polls are snapshots in times. So, uh, the Biden administration still has a year to work on this, but they better get on their horse because uh, we're facing big problems. I also want to mention, uh, as I should have coming out of the break, uh, that for our radio listeners out there, if you'd like to see us, well, maybe no one wants to see me, but uh, if you want to see our guest as well as listen to him, you can check out the our, uh, video broadcast on uh, twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or on facebook.com front slash deadline dc with brad bannon okay uh you know i was reading something this morning that i want to ask you about sarah because it troubled me uh last week uh we had a rabbi at a synagogue uh killed uh by an unknown assailant uh, we had a Palestinian uh, boy of Palestinian descent, five-year-old boy of Palestinian descent, uh, killed. Uh, this is all in the wake of the uh, troubles in the Mideast. What's happening to our country? I mean, it's, you know, people are just randomly shooting each other. Uh, violence is taking over. What's the problem here? I think that the divisions and the and the hatred and the uh, rising violent rhetoric is has has poisoned our you know our country and I think the divisions are so strong now and and then you see um, how every single tragedy is exploited and to go into the three examples that you just gave. And, you know, I like to focus for a minute on the Detroit area. I'm from Detroit. And to see um, the NBC did this article about, oh, you know, um, the Muslims in Dearborn, they are not going to vote for Biden. Uh, And one of the people they quoted was was actually a Republican who didn't vote for Biden in the first place. But one of the ugly things that's been happening, Detroit has always been this absolutely amazing um, melting pot community where they have this the, one of the largest populations of Muslims and a very large population of Jewish people living very close together. And what's happened, Republicans went into Dearborn and into Hamtramck. And before the 2022 elections, they were pushing these extremist anti-LGBTQ messages about you know the school boards with all of that business that we saw, we still see them doing. And and it did take root in for some people. And so I see that. And, you know, that's not a message about here's what we stand for as a party. That's pushing hate and radicalizing people and, and extremism. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. Sarah, I'm going to have to cut you off because, unfortunately, we're run out of time. Uh, guest in this half hour has been Sarah Jones, uh, editor in chief of uh, Politicus 
uh, USA. Uh, always glad to have Sarah on the show, and I'm sure we'll be seeing her again soon. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC right after this message. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this segment of the show, our guest is Bob Deans, uh, who is Director of Strategic Engagement for the Natural Resource Defense Council. I wanted to talk to Bob today uh, because it seems to me, watching my coverage of the national news, uh, it is preoccupied with uh, international crises. Uh, the war in the Middle East, the proxy war against the Russians in Ukraine, uh, but we're not hearing very much about the climate crisis facing our nation and the world. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to focus on that, uh, try to bring it back to the public four. Uh, Bob, uh, thanks for joining us again today. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, oh, we have a clip uh, on climate change about the upcoming uh, climate change conference in Dubai in November. Humanity has opened the gates of hell. Horrendous heat is having horrendous effects. Distraught farmers watching crops carried away by floods, sweltering temperatures spawning disease, and thousands fleeing in fear as historic fires rage. Climate action is dwarfed by the scale of the challenge. If nothing changes, we are heading towards a 2.8 degree temperature rise towards a dangerous and unstable world. But the future is not fixed. It is for leaders like you to write it. The move from fossil fuels to renewables is happening, but we are decades behind. We must make up time lost to foot dragging, arm twisting, and the, the naked greed of entrenched interests raking in billions from fossil fuels. The proposed Climate Solidarity Pact calls on major emitters who have benefited most from fossil fuels to make extra efforts to cut emissions and on wealthy countries to supporting emerging economies to do so. Many of the poorest nations have every right to be angry, angry that they are suffering most from a climate crisis they did nothing to create, angry that promised finance has not materialized and angry that their borrowing costs are sky high. We need a transformation to rebuild trust. That was United Nations General Secretary uh, Andres Gutierrez uh, talking about the existential crisis facing us from an environment from environmental problems. And again, our guest is Bob Deans, who is Director of Strategic Engagement. Uh, at the uh, Natural Resources Defense Council. Bob, welcome back to Deadline DC. Thank uh, you, Brad. Do you want to make a comment on that clip uh, uh, we heard from the Secretary General? You bet. I mean, he's absolutely right. We're facing an existential crisis uh, globally. We've talked about some of the manifestations of this in the past. Um, you know, if you, even if you look at the, at the Mediterranean, the front page of the New York Times today, a, a, story about olive oil prices going sky high because climate change impacts 
the impacts there. Um, Italy, impact on, on growing honey, impact on raising cattle and milk across the Mediterranean last year. And of course, we saw just here in this country uh, the devastating impact of heat waves that impacted two-thirds of our people, dangerous heat waves that made it dangerous to work outside uh, on a farm, a construction site, a highway, anything like that. Um, we saw the Canadian wildfires that blotted out the sun as far south as Washington, D.C., where, where we are, Brad. And, um, of course, we've seen this on and on across the developing world on the front lines of climate change. And so what the uh, Secretary General is trying to do is rally uh, the political will for successful global climate talks in Dubai that start at the end of November and go into the first week of December. And this is occurring at a time of urgency and complexity in the climate crisis that demands three things. We need greater ambition from countries in Dubai. We need greater accountability and we need greater equity. So those are the three themes that we can, uh, that we're pushing for as we go to these, uh, what's called the COP28 in Dubai in November, Brad. Well, uh, I think uh, the previous conference was in Scotland, wasn't it? I Last year, it was in, um, I want to say, it was it was somewhere in the Middle East region. Oh, okay. Um, the year before that, it was in Glasgow, Scotland, two years oh, okay. ago. Okay. Okay. Well, let's look at that point of view. You know, looking back to the Glasgow conference, I assume that all sorts of promises were made by nations then to do this and that to fight off climate change. Uh, have they kept have they kept their their promises they made promises. at the last well here's what's important to keep in perspective in 2015 when we had the landmark paris climate accord which came out of global climate talks in paris in late 2015 we went into those talks, Brad, the world was on track for four degrees Celsius of warming. That would be a catastrophic 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit of warm, warming. Coming out of Glasgow, if countries keep their promises, we have cut that to 2.4 degrees centigrade, which is about 4.3 degrees Fahrenheit of warming as compared to pre-industrial temperatures globally. That's still too hot. We need to limit that warming to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. That's why countries need to bring greater ambition to uh, Dubai. But to your point about keeping promises, we need structures in place for accountability to make sure that all the countries, starting with the United States, keep our climate promises so that we can meet our global climate goals, Brad. Okay. Uh, you know, I, on this subject, I read something in the Washington Post uh, that was just before uh, we went on the air, and uh, scientists uh, have discovered that the uh, West Antarctica uh, ice sheet is melting faster than they had anticipated. Uh, and I believe what they said was if, uh, if the temperature keeps growing, uh, at a rate of over 2.2 uh, degrees Celsius, uh, we that could increase sea levels anywhere from 20 to 40 inches. Absolutely. Um, 
and we have ice melting more rapidly than the computer models predicted all over the world. Um, in the Arctic, the sea ice is, is disappearing. Now that sea ice is floating in the ocean, so when it melts, it doesn't increase sea level. But when you have an ice sheet like Greenland or West Antarctica, um, these are land-based, this is land-based ice. So when it melts, the water does go into the ocean and it does increase sea level rise. And of course, we're, we're on track now for between 10 and 12 inches of sea level rise globally uh, by about 2050. So over the next 30 years, we're on track for another foot of sea level rise globally, but it, it, it impacts different places in different ways. The East Coast of the United States, sea level is rising 40% faster than it is around the rest of the world, Brad. Well, that's a you know good point because uh, the reality is that uh, you know I mean about a month ago here in the Northeast uh, we had massive you know rainfall uh, which shut down the New York City subway system uh, for a couple of uh, days uh, in Miami they're talking about the dangers that Miami and Miami Beach face because the sea level is rising so high. I'm going to ask you about those two things when we get back from break. Uh, we're going to take a short break uh, to give our radio listeners a vacation. Our guest in this half hour is Bob Dean from the Natural Resources Defense Council, and this is Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Welcome back. Our guest in this half hour is Bob Deans, the Director of Strategic Engagement for the Natural Resources Defense Council. We're talking about the climate change crisis. Bob, I thought, you know, we talked about before we went to break, uh, rising sea levels, flooding on the east coast of the United States. It seems to me periodically I see um, on the news stories about massive flooding in Pakistan, which displaced hundreds of thousands of people. I generally feel pessimistic about this situation. And I know I've, the last couple of times I've had you on, I've asked you this question, and I'd like to ask it again because uh, you usually provide reassurance. Uh, but do we have a grip on this thing? Are we making progress? Absolutely making progress. We talked a little bit uh, ago about how we have narrowed the gap between the amount of warming we can expect and the amount of warming we need to limit to avoid catastrophic climate change, but we're not moving quickly enough. But here are a couple of points of uh, hope, if you will. This year, Brad, globally, we're going to be investing $1.7 trillion to make our economies more efficient, to get more clean power from the wind and sun, and to build that modern, reliable power grid and storage system that helps support clean energy worldwide, 1.7 trillion. As a point of comparison, we'll spend about a trillion dollars on fossil fuel development. So for every dollar spent to develop oil, gas, and coal, we're spending $1.70 on clean energy. Now, that is a sea change. It's not the, the gap needs to continue to broaden. We need to accelerate this shift, but that's a sea change in how the global economy is going to be working in the coming years. That's what we need to come continue to move in that direction, Brad. Okay. 
Let me ask you this, the conference in November, and when in November does it start, by the way? It, it's toward the end of November, Brad. Okay. Um, sort of right, think of it in terms of the week after Thanksgiving, okay. uh, to, and, and it goes on for about two weeks. Last couple of weeks, there hasn't been much coverage on, on in American media on climate change, you know, because of the events in the Middle East, uh, mostly. Now, let's face it, we're engaged in a proxy war in Ukraine, uh, I'm afraid these are things I worry about anyway, that the dangers of climate change are going to be lost in the shuffle because the uh, focus of media attention is on actual combat. Well, absolutely. And first of all, uh, whether it's Ukraine or, or Gaza or Israel, our hearts go out to the people who are suffering uh, from these wars. Um, it's horrible. And we are in the camp where we are very hopeful uh, for the day when everybody can live in peace and security and secure prosperity for their families. So that's the number one focus. Uh, at the same time, there is a global political will um, that is being devoted to these kinds of issues, rightly so, but uh, we can't allow that to take away from the imperative to uh, confront the climate crisis. And here's why, Brad, uh, people around the world are paying a high and growing cost for this climate crisis right now. And nowhere is that more true than across the developing world. And these are people who have done nothing to cause the crisis and they're paying a price that they can't afford because of it. And just to give you one little um, tidbit, um, just four entities, the United States, China, the European Union member countries, and Russia, US, EU, China, and Russia, those four entities are responsible for 63% of the carbon dioxide that has accumulated in the atmosphere from burning coal, gas, and oil. The lowest income, 50%, are responsible for, some, for a fraction of that just a fraction of it. And the 10 countries that are most climate vulnerable, we're talking about countries like Mozambique, Haiti, Pakistan, those 10 most vulnerable climate countries altogether have produced less than 1% of this accumulated carbon. So this is a great injustice globally. It must be addressed. It is a security issue and we need to treat it as such, Brad. You know, I read a couple of uh, articles, you know, maybe a few months ago or a year about uh, Pentagon uh, planning uh, indicates that as climate change becomes more and more of a problem, uh, more uh, people displaced, uh, that and and you know food supplies and endangered that the situation could lead uh, you know to increase in, in military uh, conflict. Do you, do you think that's true? No question about it. I mean, you mentioned Pakistan earlier, where one third of that country was put underwater by floods last year. Some of these yeah, villages and towns haven't dried up yet. Um, Pakistan's the fifth most populous country in the world. It is a nuclear country. And destabilization in a country like that is not good for anybody. Um, if you look at uh, South America, across that belt in the Andes, uh, stretching from Venezuela to Argentina. 
um, the Andes uh, glaciers are melting, starving millions of people of needed water sources. That creates instability. It, it accelerates poverty. Um, and in Africa, if you look across the Horn of Africa, where croplands are turning to deserts, pasture land is drying up, and you've got 37 million people who've been pushed to the brink of starvation now by one of the worst droughts in 40 years. These are, are clear examples of where climate change is breeding instability, and that's exactly what our Pentagon analysts are worried about, Brad. And over the weekend, I was watching on TV the uh, baseball game between the Phillies in Arizona that was uh, taking place at uh, in Phoenix. And they casually mentioned during the broadcast that the temperature in Phoenix, and we're talking about October 20th here, was 100 that day. And I also remember that someone on the news watching someone discuss the link between climate change and population displacement. And, you know, we had a stretch in Phoenix back about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, where it was 110 in Phoenix for like consecutive weeks or something. And this expert said that basically, well, you think it's hot in Phoenix? People want to get out of there. Think how it's even hotter in Mexico than it is in Phoenix. And that she said there was a link between climate change and immigration from uh, Central and South America. You bet. And people are going to be moving to, uh, away from places that are increasingly becoming uninhabitable. There were parts of China, Brad, last summer that were 126 degrees. We can't even fathom yeah, that, I remember that heat. And people can't survive in that heat. Um, people can't work outside in that kind of heat. People can't uh, sit comfortably in a home without running an air conditioner. And for billions of people around the world, that's just not even possible. And so obviously we have to do something about it. And what the science has made clear is that these kinds of heat waves, unprecedented, uh, would have been impossible had we not warmed the planet from burning coal, gas, and oil primarily in the past 30 years, Brad. Let me ask you this last question. President Biden is clearly preoccupied these days with uh, the situation in the Middle East, the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what and the other side of the equation is our government has essentially shut down because of the uh, GOP chaos in the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives can't act until they uh, find a speaker, and God only knows when that's going to be. So the government is effectively shut down. I'm not even talking about the government shutdown that might happen on November 15th. What can President Biden do at this point to improve the situation? Well, I think what the president did is a couple of things. He came in and he said, we're going to cut our carbon footprint in this country or cut our greenhouse gases in half by 2030. We are positioned within striking distance of that because of three things that Biden has done. One, passing the uh, climate and clean energy incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act, which since its passage a little more than a year ago, Brad, more than $95 billion in corporate announcements for factories to be built across the American heartland to build solar panels, wind turbines, electric vehicles, and advanced batteries. That's huge. Number two, he is uh, putting in place new rules to clean up the tailpipe emissions from our cars and trucks. And number three, uh, new rules and standards to clean up our dirty power plants. If done right, these three things together, Brad, 
can cut our greenhouse gases 45 percent by 2030. If we go after methane in an effective way and do a couple more things, we can hit that target that the president has set of 50 to 52 percent greenhouse gas reductions by 2030. Uh, Bob, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, I want to thank both our guests, uh, Sarah Jones, Editor-in-Chief of the uh, Politicus USA, and Bob Deans, who is Director of Strategic Engagement at the National Resources Defense Council. And, of course, I want to thank our Crackerjack executive producer, Mark Grimaldi. We'll be back next Monday if the Lord is willing and the creek don't rise for more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. And still then, stand tall and stay safe in these troubled and turbulent times. We'll be back next Monday.